morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Longtime listeners of our program know that it is uh, fairly common that each and every week I unpack the weekly Torah portion, that section of the five books of Moses, which is read in synagogues throughout the world and which is called a parasha in Hebrew. A guest usually helps me do that as we look for the meaning behind the literal words of the text. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different in as much as both the Jewish community and Christian community will be celebrating major festivals at the end of this week. And it is with great pleasure that I introduce a very different kind of guest. He comes to us not from North America, but from uh, Rio de Janeiro. Um, and while he is a uh, ordained rabbi, having represented uh, three congregations in the reform movement of North America, and having served a liberal congregation in Brazil, he is most noted as an expert in interfaith dialogue and uh, the interface of uh, theology between faiths. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Dr. Joseph A. Edelheit, who served as a rabbi in a number of congregations in, in America, is Emeritus Professor of Religious and Jewish Studies of St. Cloud State University in Minneapolis of the United States. He is a well-known uh, interlocutor of religious faith um, amongst different communities and a very accomplished author. He is the author of a book entitled, What Am I Missing? Questions About Being Human. And as well, he is the editor of a book entitled, Life of the Covenant, The Challenge of Contemporary Judaism, as well as the editor of many other collections of articles. Um, and I could go on and on about um, his accomplishments. Um, unusually, he served on the task force regarding HIV AIDS under the Clinton administration in the United States, as well as led um, journeys for students to Eastern Europe to visit Holocaust um, memorials and uh, concentration camps, as well as having done um, introduced um, music, which was part and parcel of that. So I want to welcome this morning to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Joseph Edelheit. Good morning. And it is good for Rio de Janeiro, the Southern Hemisphere, to be represented as we look at the two holy days that will be observed this week, Easter and Passover. Pesach beginning, of course, on Wednesday night, the first day being Thursday, and then Thursday night being Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. I say Rio, Steve, because these two scriptural festivals highlight the Northern Hemisphere bias of Judaism and Christianity. 
having moved to Brazil in 2016, I came to understand I never realized everyone in the Southern Hemisphere who follows scriptural holy days, Jews, Christians, Muslims, is stuck with this scriptural bias. It all happened in the North. For you, it will be spring, eventually in Canada. For us, summer's over, and this is autumn. We want to talk about, to begin with, we want to talk about why is it that Passover and Easter, which don't have set dates, unlike Christmas, which we know is always uh, December 25th, um, regardless of what hemisphere we live in. And, um, but Easter and um, Passover um, usually um, arrive at similar times. Where, and you're correct, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's expected to be spring, and all the symbolism of both holidays is related to spring. And perhaps we'll chat a bit about that, but help our listeners understand the historical origin of these holidays with regard to the calendar. Look, uh, these were originally spring harvest festivals. Immediately following whatever the necessity of that spring harvest was, we get an origin story in the Exodus. The Exodus, which comes on the night of the 14th, and the 15th day of Nisan, which is the first Hebrew month of the Jewish calendar. So while you say it doesn't have a set day, no, not in the, quote, Gregorian calendar, but in the Hebrew calendar, it always begins on the night of the 14th, the first full day, the 15th of Nisan. Now, Easter is dependent on Pesach. In every regard, unlike, quote, Christmas and Hanukkah that critically don't have anything to do with each other, Pesach and Easter are inextricably linked. How do we know? So let's just remind our, let's just remind our listeners, of course, that um, when Rabbi Edelheit speaks about the 14th and 15th of Nisan, he's quoting from Exodus chapter 12 and 13, in which the final plague is about to make an appearance, and the Israelites are given instructions by the divine about their responsibility um, to of how to survive the plague and the aftermath, which will be Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the leaving of Egypt. And in that biblical citation, we find the dating. Right. Um, that this will be the 14th and 15th of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. For those who are unfamiliar with that and all and many of the symbols that are used on the Jewish community um, uh, originate in that biblical epic from Exodus. Um, but just to keep our listeners aware of that, now make the transference from that biblical story of Passover, which they may understand, to the Easter epic. Thursday night, Monday, Thursday, the Lord's Last Supper. In the upper chamber, Jesus and his disciples will have a meal. Uh, 
sometimes misrepresented as actually a Seder meal. Uh, If it was a meal dealing with the festival of Passover, it was not yet a Seder. That would take centuries to develop. It might have used some of the elements of what would later become Seder because there was still an ancient temple. There was still a priesthood. They still gave up the Paschal sacrifice. So the priesthood and the sacrifice was still part of the world in which Jesus and his disciples experienced. This past Sunday, Palm Sunday, he comes in for one of the pilgrimage festivals. Three pilgrimage festivals. Thursday is the supper. Then Friday becomes the trial and, of course, then his crucifixion. That is linked with his being in Jerusalem to observe the pilgrimage festival of Pesach. They must go hand in hand. They might not be as close as they are this year, literally Wednesday night, Thursday, and the weekend, but the two festivals share the power of being scriptural origin stories. That's great. And our listeners should remember that in the Gospels, um, the four Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, which describe Jesus's journey, there's some variation as to the story uh, regarding Passover, but they all agree that on the Thursday, Jesus um, joined thousands of Jews making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem so that the Paschal sacrifice could be made by the priesthood in the ancient temple. At that point, it would have been the second temple reimagined by Herod. But nonetheless, um, that would have been the essential component. And therefore, once um, the events that are described in the Gospels re- re- regarding the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, it would be hard to separate the dating from Passover. Unlike uh, perhaps the Christmas story, in which the Gospels are not clear about when Jesus may or may not have been born and what he was doing in Bethlehem as opposed to Nazareth, that's a different dynamic in the history of religion. So we find ourselves with these festivals joined by the biblical scripture that they must come uh, similar in time. Um, though not necessarily the exact date. Um, and maybe you can remind some of our listeners, how does the dating of Easter get chosen? Well, I, I think it gets chosen by the nature of what the Gregorian, the uh, national culture of the dominant um, community, which since the time of Constantine was Christian. But it is not set as the 14th and 15th. So you have this differential. In the dominant culture, Easter is set by the nature of the culture and its timing in the calendar. The Jewish calendar is a 
solar lunar calendar. So we have a very confusing way of maintaining solar seasonal festivals and lunar months. Don't want to get into how we change that. No, that that takes a whole program in and of itself to confuse the listeners. Right. So the nature of the segue as we experience it in 2023 is an ideal time for us to look at origin stories that are locked into the promise of redemption from slavery and the promise of salvation from sin. So help our listeners, because that's wonderful segue. These two festivals not only share um, a springtime dating, but essentially they are theological, uh, historical festivals. Um, They um, celebrate a a historical event as the text presents it in the case of Passover, the exodus from Egypt, um, and in the case of Easter, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. But more than historical events, they are about theology. And as you've said, one is about the theology of redemption, and the other is the theology of salvation. So help us understand the difference between the two. So we get... Because on the surface, they they may seem alike to some of our listeners. We get two festivals that are anchored in a much older agricultural festival. Then the history gets added to the agricultural festival. Scripture locks in that history. Now we have post-first century, two different faiths emerging into different cultures. That process is where we get theology. We don't get the theology inherently in Scripture. Scripture will give us a tone, but we have to wait for Scripture to be lived outside the text. That will take, for instance, a Seder, a Haggadah, as Jews will celebrate it tomorrow night all around the world. That took about 750 years to develop that book and that reading. Uh, It took a long time to determine how are we going to tell the story? That is literally what Haggadah means. In the same way, Easter would come to mean salvation, but first there had to be a longer period of time separating Judaism and Christianity. And ultimately, it would be the need for salvation that distinguishes Christianity from Judaism. Jews celebrated freedom. Christians will take that freedom and turn it into being saved from inherent sin. And they will go back and read the scripture, he died on the cross for me. That may not have been meant specifically in the text, but it is the theology that will be developed over the next 400 years. So the story of Passover is a story of antiquity, 
regardless of how we understand the uh, coming together of the Torah, it certainly predates the common era. Absolutely. And in some cases, by a thousand years, some would argue. But the story of Easter, of course, is post the common era. Correct. Um, And therefore, um, how the church evolves, as you've suggested, to distinguish itself from Judaism and become something totally unique and separate um, means that they evolve a theology which is quite different than the Jewish theology. Correct. So if redemption is the hallmark of the Passover story, we are redeemed from slavery, let my people go that they may serve their God, so that they go from servitude to Pharaoh to servitude to Adonai, a fulfillment of the covenant. Um, What transpires in those hundreds of years that uh, allows Christianity to make that significant alteration to talk about salvation? Uh, The purpose of the Exodus was to get the Israelites to Mount Sinai. It was not to give them freedom without responsibility. It was to engage them in the content of their responsibility. Mount Sinai, the Torah, the revelation of the 613 commandments, and ultimately all that would evolve out of God's relationship with, this is how you are to serve me. That is distinguished from. Christianity that determined it will not be a law-centered faith, but a faith centered around the gift of the sacrifice of God's Son dying on the cross. So there are things that are not a part of the Easter story that will become significant to the nature of theology, the Trinity incarnation, but always underscoring God gave you a unique gift, God's incarnate son dying on Good Friday, the promise of his risenness on Easter Sunday, that act now affirms your hope in eternal life. That will take several centuries, it evolves as Christianity moves into the, quote, Holy Roman Empire, the so-called early church fathers, the patristics, who offer Christians the reason you believe in Jesus is the promise of salvation, the gift he gives you. That takes time to evolve. As, as you're speaking, you use the word promise. You, the church fathers and the uh, disciples who remain after Jesus, um, including Paul, uh, massage the story um, to speak of a promise, a promise of salvation. Um, and I'm wondering, um, 
How does that notion of promise differ from the promise that the Torah speaks of so consistently of a promise of a land? Is it simply the nature of an exiled people who need a different kind of promise? Or is um, the land of Israel, as it's portrayed in uh, the Torah, Israelite religion, is that to some degree the Torah's usage, uh, the massaging of the concept of salvation? Wonderful question. No, no monotheistic scriptural religion is without an inherent promise. We have to go back to Genesis 12 in the initial conversation between the one unseen, unseeable God and Abram. And the promises that are made there are not just about land, but becoming a people, a community linked to each other, to this one God. I think we would need another session, invite me back, where we can talk about whether that promise, ultimately about people and land, can be understood as a parallel to salvation. Good. Okay. I, um, I, I know that we hadn't spoken in advance of making that transition, but as you were speaking, it struck me that you were so correct that both Christianity, Judaism, and of course, Islam are all about the divine promise. Yes. And what it is that rewards you for making this commitment to the deity or the incarnation of the deity or the prophet of the deity um, in each of the various faiths, this notion of promise seems preeminent. And so maybe we will come back and talk about the notion of promise. There, there is tomorrow night a moment where we talk about promise. We open the door and invite Elijah to our tables uh, with a cup that is untasted, a cup of the promise of that which has not yet occurred. So whatever the rabbis in developing the Haggadah, they understood what you've just outlined, Steve. They understood history only as history isn't enough. It's history as an anchor to the promise. Christians call it the prolepsis, the always already not yet. So Jews and Christians share in that which is still coming. Both traditions have this um, historical memory that anchors them to their faith. The Exodus story, which um, repeats itself as the foundational story in so many other ways, does Christianity use the resurrection and um, uh, crucifixion in a similar way as a foundational story? Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh absolutely. Th this becomes the means through which uh, the community shares in the Lord's table. In Luther's little catechism, they are told to invite people to the table on the night he was betrayed. Well. 
That's Thursday night. So the idea that Jesus and his disciples shared that meal and everything that transpires from that meal is where we go to the table to share in communion. It is, of course, um, interesting that Passover is essentially a family observance. Yes. That while um, services are offered um, in the tradition of Judaism, they're offered every day, three times a day. So the fact that there's a service on the first day of Passover is not unique. Um, and of course, there's a service every Sunday in Christian tradition, but the service on Sunday of Easter, like the service on Sunday of um, Christmas, becomes the preeminent community service of the entire calendar year. Why is that? Uh, now it's sociology, Steve. Uh, Jews, okay. Christians, Muslims, we are dealing with communities that want to know, what are the two days I have to be there? Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Okay. okay. This is 21st century social reality. And, and not necessarily the historical story. Original story. In the time that we have left, just a couple of minutes, um, what else would you like our listeners to know about the synchronism of Passover and Easter? It becomes an ideal entanglement to look at how two different faiths can share in the intricacy right down to an egg, the Easter egg. Oh. And there's a roasted egg on the Passover plate. The egg, the most... I was so hoping you would mention that. The most natural shape in nature, the egg, the egg which, which came first. The chicken or the egg, rebirth, regeneration. Look how these two faiths have taken the path that, as you said, syncretism absorbs the cultures in which their followers live. It's a wonderful time of year for Jews and Christians to share and realize the past has been brought to this very moment. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Professor Joe Edelheit speaking to us from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I want to thank him for some wonderful insights. You can listen to our show on CHRI 99.1 FM or as a podcast on CHRI.ca or on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast from. From Ottawa, Canada, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you Hag Sameach if you observe Passover, a happy Easter. Shalom and have a good day. <laughs>